Over the last several weeks, we've been thinking about what it means to live in faith and hope as we wait for the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that end, we've turned to the ancient songs and prayers of the people of God from long, long ago. Songs and prayers which they used to encourage their faith and hope as they waited for God's Christ to come the first time. These songs are found in the Psalms, right kind of about in the middle of your Bibles. What we've discovered through these songs is that we live really in a tension that's very similar to the ancient people of God, the tension that they lived in. They had God's promises and they were waiting for God's promised one. When God came in the flesh, He fulfilled His promises to send a Savior and still our Savior, Jesus Christ, He, he returned to the Father's side. He, he ascended into heaven. And now we hold on to the promise of His return. And like the ancient people of God, we are waiting for God to send His promised one again. But what connection does, does that have to do with our day-to-day? -day? What connection does all of this have to do with Christmas, even? Well, I hope that you have come to see, or, or will come to see, that since Christmas is about the arrival of the Deliverer, through these songs and prayers, we're learning to express our faith in God as we are waiting for the arrival of our Deliverer once more. And I hope that you've come to see that these songs actually have a lot to teach us about our day today. Perhaps even this past week, you have felt the difficulty of life in this world. And you've longed for God to send Jesus and make all things new. These songs teach us that when these longings for our final deliverance are inevitably stirred in our hearts through trials and troubles, we can call out to God, remember His good and His faithful character, and cling to Him in faith. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning as we study Psalm 86. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 86. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you should be able to find Psalm 86 beginning on page 494. 494. The Psalms, uh, as you may know, are a collection of 150 prayers, poems, proclamations, and songs of the ancient people of God. The Psalms are collected into five different books and Psalm 86 is found within the third book of the Psalms. Book 3 seems to be especially filled with Psalms from the ancient people of Israel petitioning God to look with favor upon His people, to make good on His promises and deliver His people. Generally speaking, they're asking God to give His people relief and to end their suffering. As we'll come to see in Psalm 86, the suffering of God's people is focused in on one person. David. As you see from the ascription there, this is a prayer of David. And unlike the psalm we studied last week, Psalm 54, the ascription of Psalm 86 doesn't give us the historical circumstances of which first gave rise to this prayer from David. From verse 14, if you just scan your eyes down there to verse 14, we learn that insolent men have turned against David, that a band of ruthless men seeks his life, and that they do not set God before them. In other words, there are evil men after David, God's anointed king. It seems most likely that this psalm was written either when Saul was after David or later perhaps in David's life when his son Absalom was after him. 
Whatever the case may be from this psalm, and therefore from David, we learn that when burdened by trials and troubles, we must keep God and His character at the center of our thoughts and prayers. If you're wondering about the central message of Psalm 86, I think that's it. Quite simply, when burdened by troubles and trials, make God your central concern. I think that the structure of the psalm actually reveals this to be the case. Uh, The structure of the psalm is a bit like a sandwich. I hope that doesn't make you hungry. Think about it like an ice cream sandwich since it's cold outside. That'll stave off some hunger. Uh, It's a bit like a sandwich. It begins with petitions and pleas. Uh, And then, in the core, in the middle of this psalm, it it has uh, David praising God, uh, thanking God, making promises to God. And then it closes again with some petitions and pleas as well. And we'll study this psalm by following its its movements. So in verses 1 to 7, we'll see David's initial petitions. Then in verses 8 to 13, we'll consider the center of David's prayer, where we see his praise and promise. And finally, in verses 14 to 17, we'll consider David's closing petitions and pleas. And those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Initial petitions, praise and promise, and closing petitions. Let's begin with our first point, with our initial point, initial petitions. And as we do, let's read the first seven verses. Let me read those verses for us. Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. As we read these verses, I I wonder if David's petitions jumped out at you. It, It seems like his petitions really are kind of relentless. One right after another. In this stretch of seven verses, David makes eight petitions. He makes Two requests, two petitions in verse 1, incline your ear and answer me. Then in verse 2 we hear two more, preserve my life and save your servant. We come to verse 3, David offers only one petition, be gracious. Same is true of verse 4, just one, gladden the soul of your servant. You skip over to verse 5, it really provides kind of a momentary reprieve from petitions. But then when you get back to verse 6, it jumps back up to two more petitions. Give ear and listen to my plea for grace. And then as you see there in verse 7, contains really more of a statement than a petition. But more on that in a moment. While we might kind of identify these petitions or look at them each individually, uh, really there's a good bit of overlap between them, these eight petitions. In the end, really what we have is three particular requests. A request for hearing, a request for deliverance, and a request for grace. Hearing, deliverance, and grace. Let me show you these again. The petitions in verses 1 and 6 are really a whole lot alike. They're very much alike. They might be summarized as a petition for God to hear David's prayer. Now just pause and think about this for a moment. David is asking God to hear his prayer. Does that seem strange to you? Do do you ever ask God to hear your prayer? Or or do we assume that? Um, We may often pray, Father, would you provide me with patience for my co-workers 
or children today. Or we might pray, Father, would you provide me with an opportunity to speak of Jesus today? But David frames his prayer slightly differently. Uh, Here's how David might put one of our prayers today. David might pray, Father, would you give me wisdom in serving my boss today? I'm asking that you would hear and answer this prayer. What's the difference? Well, I think that the difference is that when David is asking God to hear and answer his prayers, he's expressing a sense of of urgency, of desperate need. Too often, I I fail to adequately recognize my own need. What about you? Is Is that true for you? Sometimes we're confronted with a a struggle or a trial. We try and go at it alone in our own strength. And it's only when, in the Lord's kindness, we kind of keep running into a wall. We come to realize the depth of our need, that we need to cry out to God, to call out to Him in prayer. David is needy, and we are too. This repeated request for God to hear David's prayer reveals that David is experiencing something of a crisis. And this becomes plain in the second group of requests. It's really found there in verse 2. When David asks that God preserve his life and save his servant, what we're looking at is a request for deliverance. David's circumstances are dire. And the third kind of request that David makes is a request for grace. You see that there in verses 3 and 4. David asks for grace and gladness. David asks for God's favor and for his soul to repose in delight. So here's the sum of David's prayer in these first seven verses. Hear me, deliver me, favor me, O God. Now, why did David make these requests? He actually provides us with reasons. Along with these eight petitions, David provides five reasons for these requests. It works kind of like this. I'm asking for this because of this or because you are this. This is how these petitions and reasons work together. David makes these requests because he's destitute, because he trusts in God, because he calls out to God, because God is good, and because God answers prayer. See, the first uh, reason for these requests comes there in verse 1. For I am, David's saying something about himself, I am poor and needy. David is destitute. He can do nothing to help himself. He's lost all hope in himself. His only hope is God. We too are poor in spirit with nothing to bring to God. And we should confess that when we pray. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, as James chapter 4, verse 6 says. This is a humble confession from David. He is in need. And the second reason that David puts before God to answer his petition comes there in verse 2. For I am godly who trusts in you. You are my God. what, What happened to our humble David? Nothing. He, he is still has nothing in his hands to bring to God. All he is saying here is, Lord, I belong to you. I, I claim you as my God. I'm one of your people. We say this same thing. We pray, Father, Father, I am one of your children and I'm in great need. For the good of your child, would you please act? We can cast all of our cares upon God because he cares for us. First Peter 5, 7. God cares for His children. And that is a good reason to ask Him to answer our prayers. We're provided with a third reason there in verses 3 and 4. David says, For to you do I cry all the day. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. David is casting his cares, his petitions upon God to answer. He's saying, God, I'm calling out to no one else but you. 
That's why you should answer me. The fourth reason you see there in verse 5. And this is really kind of a list, a list that honors God. Here David recounts the goodness, love, and forgiveness of God. David calls out to God, but he is because he's a God who can help in times of trouble. David calls out to God because he is a God who can hear and act. Isn't this why we should bring our petitions and pleas to our God? Shouldn't David's reasons for bringing his requests to God be the very reasons that we bring our requests to God? Aren't we needy? Don't we belong to God? Don't we trust Him? Don't we know that He is good and loving and forgiving? And don't we know that He is pleased to answer the prayers of His people? David is in trouble. He petitions God for help. And because God does hear and He does help His people, brothers and sisters, never forget that. He does hear, He does answer. He does help. Now, his help may not always come in the form that we ask or expect, but he provides us with all that we need. So call upon him. Make your requests known to him. He's a father who has turned his ear toward his children. Well, having heard David's initial petitions, let's turn now and consider his praise and promise. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Praise and promise. And as we do... Read Psalm 86. Let's read Psalm 86, verses 8 to 13. David writes, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my hearts to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. These verses, they stand in the middle of David's petitions. They are the middle of the petition, kind of sandwich as it were. But they're also more than the middle. For these verses and the truth about God we find in them are what motivates a person to call out to God in prayer. These verses have a distinct focus on the character, the the might, and the power of God. In the first seven verses, David, he kind of gave us a taste of God's good character. But in these verses, David, he really invites us to to drink deeply of God's character. In verse 8, David invites us to consider the uniqueness of God. And this is borne out in two ways. David's God is unrivaled in his person and in his work. You see that in verse 8? David's God is unrivaled in his person. There is none like you among the gods. There is no God, lowercase g, there's no God like Yahweh. After all, our God is, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, a spirit in and of himself, infinite being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, Everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. To use the language that our upper elementary Sunday class is using, God is omnipresent. The Lord is everywhere all the time. 
God is omniscient. The Lord knows everything there is to know. God is omnipotent. The Lord is all-powerful. God is, has in Himself a satiety. The Lord, he, he needs nothing. He's fully sufficient and satisfied in Himself. In some, there is no God like our God. There is no God like the God of the Bible. One of the fascinating things about um, the origin stories from the pagan uh, nations in the ancient Near East is that they will often disclose the reasons for why the gods, lowercase g, uh, created man. In, in two of the Mesopotamian accounts, uh, we learn that the reason that man was created because the gods became tired of work. So they created man to do the work for them. Uh, laziness is not a great reason for creating man. And, and this, it really stands in sharp contrast to the God of the Bible who never grows tired or weary, as we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Isaiah writes, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's striking when you read the ancient pagan origin stories, how they, they very often paint the gods, lowercase g, uh, in, in kind of a negative light. Um, the gods, lowercase g, are often portrayed as being vindictive and selfish and self-serving. It's true also of the many ancient Greek stories as well. The God of the Bible, the one true God, the God who has no beginning and no end, on the other hand, is always presented as holy, just, and good. And because that is who He is in His person, there is none like Him among the gods. Our God is unique and unrivaled in His person. Our God is also unique and unrivaled in His work. That's what the second half of verse 8 makes clear. O Lord, nor are there any works like Yours to use the, the words of a song that we, we love to sing here, which is really just drawing on the teaching of Isaiah chapter 40, who has held the oceans in his hands? Who's numbered every grain of sand? Our God has formed all things from nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. In addition to his creative work, David no doubt has God's redeeming work in mind. We could hardly doubt this is the case for David. He's, he's in the need of redemption, right? He's in trouble. He needs deliverance. And since David has just mentioned that there is no God, lowercase g, like our God, David may have in mind the, the ten plagues uh, from Exodus. In many ways, those ten plagues were a direct assault and triumph over the gods of Egypt. Or think back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, when the ark of God went through the land of the Philistines and conquered them. The Philistines, see, they had thought that they had captured God when they captured the ark. They thought that they could make him one of their deities. So they brought him in to, uh, to Dagon's temple. And God, Yahweh, toppled Dagon, hurling his statue to the ground. The statue was on the ground, face down at the feet of God, humbled before him. And comically, the Philistines, they go in, they see this, and they... They raise the statue of Dagon back up. What real God needs that kind of help from his people? Not Yahweh. Our God does not need us to resurrect him. He does that all on his own. The very next day, the Philistines, they found the statue of Dagon 
back down on the ground, its, its head cut off, its arms cut off from the body. And after having been defeated, the Philistines, they eventually just send the ark of God back to the people of Israel. He is the God who goes and fights for his people. They don't even need to go out and fight that battle. In his own life, David, he saw and experienced God's triumph over the gods of the pagan nations. When he faced off against Goliath, David knew that the battle was one which was larger than a giant and a shepherd boy. This was a battle which would determine the superiority of Israel's God over the Philistines' God once and for all. And just as God took off the head of Dagon, so he took off the head of Goliath through David. David had good reason to proclaim, O Lord, there are, uh, nor are there any works like yours. What God has made the world and all that is in it. What God has delivered his people from Egypt, parted the Red Sea, and miraculously led them through the wilderness for 40 years, feeding and clothing them all the while. What God has made the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, caused the sun to stand still, and conquer the nations to give his people the land he promised. David's God, our God, Yahweh. This is why, uh, th this is the God who is worthy of David's praise. And that's what this is. This is a, a hymn of praise to God. He is the God who is worthy of the praise of all the earth, as you see there in verse 9. He is too great to be praised by merely one man, or even one nation. He is so great that he's worthy of the praise of all of the nations. Notice the language of verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And the wonderful truth of the Bible is that this is coming true in Jesus Christ. From the moment of his birth, men from distant nations came to worship him. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we read this of the wise men from the east. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, we find people casting themselves at Jesus' feet in worship, kneeling down, honoring Him. And when we move into the book of Acts, we see Jesus' disciples carrying the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. This is even continuing today. For as we sang earlier this morning, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. We are from the nations, and we are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you? Have you come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come this morning to glorify His name? The Bible wonderfully concludes with a picture of the nations bringing their worship to the Lord Jesus. So in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 27 to 27, we read of the kings of the nations entering into the heavenly city of Jerusalem, bringing honor and glory to Jesus. You see, the nations have come. The nations are coming. The nations will come to worship the Lord Jesus. This is why we have David's praise here. This is why we have his praise in verse 10 too. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And, and there it is again. David's declaration that God is unique, unrivaled, and unmatched in his character and works. This is one of the reasons for why we have prayers of praise in our services. We want to declare the glories of God, to stand in awe of his character and to proclaim his works. In our prayers of praise, what we're doing is we're just simply imitating the Bible. What David has done here is he's praised 
God. We ought to praise God like David has praised God. And there is a reason that there are no gods, lowercase g, like our God. And it's because, as David says there at the end of verse 10, you alone are God. The truth is, is there's only one God. Only one who is worthy of praise. Now, I know I called this point praise and promise, but the truth is, David sneaks in a petition there in verse 11. Do you see it there? The petition's nestled between his praise and promise. Teach me, that's a petition, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Though verse 11 appears to be comprised of three different petitions, in reality, what we have is a single petition just stated in three different ways. In Hebrew literature, knowing, doing, and fearing are all inseparably, inseparably related. Doctrine is for life and worship. Doctrine is for devotion and for doing. What David wants, he, what he desires is a heart, mind, and life that's given to a single-minded devotion to the Lord. He doesn't want a, divided, a heart of divided loyalties. He doesn't want to walk a path that straddles trust in himself and trust in God. He doesn't want a heart that's torn between the fear of this world and the fear of God. What about you? Is that what you want? Do you want a heart of single-minded devotion to the Lord? If that's what you want, pray this prayer. Pray verse 11. I also want to encourage you to consider that the Lord may teach us His ways through suffering. Remember, David is in the midst of trial and trouble here. He's learning in this trouble... He's learning to wait upon the Lord and to wait in hope and in faith. Sometimes, God teaches His people His ways through suffering. Did you know that this is what the Bible says of Jesus? I want you to see this for yourself. So, keeping one finger here in Psalm 86, turn your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 5. I want to look at verses 7 and 8 briefly. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 1003. Hebrews chapter 5. Verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to do uh, something I don't normally do. I'm going to kind of interject some commentary as we read. Um, some commentary and reflection from Psalm 86 on these verses. But bear with me. I hope that it'll, it'll be profitable. And the point that I want ringing in your ears as we read these verses is simply this. Sometimes God teaches us His ways through suffering. That's true for Jesus too. Look at this remarkable passage about Jesus. Begin there in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Isn't that what David is doing in Psalm 86? He's offering up supplications, petitions. Verse 7 again, begin the beginning. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Who was the only one who could save David from death? It was God. Back to verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Wasn't that one of the reasons for David's petition? Yes, in, in verse 2, David prayed, Preserve my life, for I'm, I'm godly. Now take a look at verse 8. And keep in mind David's petition to be taught God's ways so that he might walk in God's truth. This is about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned, he was taught, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Christian, if Jesus is teaching you his ways through suffering, then I think you need these 
verses in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is calling you through something that he himself has experienced. Jesus can sympathize with you in your suffering. He's been there before. Our Savior never asks us to go to a place he hasn't been. He too learned obedience. He too learns to walk in God's truth through suffering. You are not alone. Your Savior has been there before. Turn back to Psalm 86. That's page 494. The Bible's provided. Psalm 86. Here we see that David asked God to teach him. To give him strength to walk in God's truth. And to have a heart set on the glory of God. I want to encourage you to pray verse 11. And purpose to give thanks to God as David does there in verse 12. There is a connection between a heart that fears God and a heart that thanks God. A heart that fears God is a heart that has known the mercies of God. And a heart that has known the mercies of God is a heart that is ready to give thanks. This is what David promises. He promises to give thanks to God. And he's not going to hold anything back. He promises to thank God with all that he has. And this promise is looking forward to the second half of verse 12, which is simply a parallel statement to the first half. Another way of saying the same thing makes plain that David is committing himself to glorifying God forever. God has shown us favor unending. And the only proper response is to give thanks and glory without end. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that sometimes we find ourselves low on gratitude and full of grumbling. If you find yourself grumbling and complaining, if you find thanks missing from your life, uh, then go back and reconsider the grace of God displayed to you in Jesus. In the words of John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Why is God's grace so precious to us? Because God's grace is His unmerited favor bestowed upon the undeserving. We don't deserve to be rescued from hell. We deserve hell. He has loved the unlovely. And if you know your heart well, you know that that's true. So give thanks and praise to Him for His grace. God's grace toward David is wonderfully captured there in verse 13, isn't it? David declares that he's a recipient of God's abundant and undying love. I think that's another faithful way of communicating the truth of God's great and steadfast love. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that God's love toward us is small. But it's not. God's love toward His people is great. Massive, abundant, overflowing. God doesn't love like we sometimes love. He, he's always all in. God's love is not small, and it's not short either. That's why David says that his love is steadfast. God's love is undying, unyielding, always and forever. God's love is relentless, steadfast, and unmoving. Even when we are tempted to drift away, when we drift away, He draws near. Isn't that what He has done for His people in Jesus Christ? He's drawn near to His people. David not only proclaims that he's a recipient of God's abundant and undying love, but he also proclaims that God has delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. 
Now, in Jewish writings, references to Sheol are references really to the realm of the dead. This is just a poetic way for David to say, to express, that God has delivered him from death. Poetry, as you know, tends to use highly stylized and rich language. We could read this poetic expression of deliverance from death a handful of ways. This could be David looking back on the past. Perhaps David is remembering how God has delivered him from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, the hand of Goliath, the hand of Saul, or, or from the hand of Absalom. God delivered David over and over and over again. David may also have in mind spiritual realities. Since he belongs to God as one of his children, since he trusts in God and his promises concerning his Messiah, David has the hope of eternal life, deliverance from eternal death. It's also possible that David has in mind future deliverance. Perhaps David is speaking of his future deliverance as he has done elsewhere in the Psalms. Perhaps David views his deliverance as so certain that he views it as a thing that's already been accomplished. I think there are actually compelling arguments for, for any of these readings of verse 13. Whatever the right answer might be, what should stand out to us is that David has made God his central concern, his central focus, his, his central hope in the midst of this trial. Verses 8 to 13 have been steeped in the trustworthy character of God. And though in the main we return uh, to his petitions in the verses that follow, God's character clearly keeps reasserting itself with the closing petitions of the verses of this psalm. And that is because David's only hope is in God. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point, closing petitions. And here we're looking at verses 14 to 17. Our third and final point. Closing petitions, verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. If we were reading this psalm straight through, uh, instead of breaking it up into three points for a sermon, we would more readily notice the sharp transition really between verses 13 and 14. Um, In verse 13, we have this declaration of deliverance, but in verse 14, we have a statement of struggle. Here we're confronted with what we very often find in the Psalms of David, enemies. Uh, These enemies reared their head as we studied Psalm 54 last week. In fact, what David says of them in verse 14, David said of his enemies in Psalm 54. So keep your eyes on verse 14. Let me read Psalm 54, verse 3. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. You see there, what David said in Psalm 54, 3 is nearly identical to what he's saying here in Psalm 86, 14. These men, whoever they are, they put themselves before God. They put themselves in the first place rather than the last place. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't love God, so it's no surprise they don't love His King. They act and live in accordance with a sense of God's absence from their lives. That is why they oppose David and want to kill him. These men are not soft. These, these men are, are hardened, abusive, arrogant, angry, brazen, murderous men. Not only is there a contrast between verses 13 and 14, 
There's a contrast between verses 14 and 15. While these brutes seek David's life, David trusts in the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See how their character is contrasted against God's character? Here we have really a reference to God's revelation of His own character from Exodus chapter 34. And this is precisely who God is. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see what David is doing? He's, he's preaching to himself. In the midst of trouble, he's reminding himself of David's character. And this is what we must do here. We're, we're getting a glimpse of what it means to live with God as our central concern when in trial and trouble. But do, what, what do all these wonderful words about God and His character mean? Our God is merciful. Which means that those in Christ Jesus will not receive what their sins deserve. God has been merciful to repentant sinners and that He has placed the punishment for their sins on Jesus. When God is merciful toward us, He, he withholds His punishment from us and pours it out on Jesus. But God is not only merciful, He's also gracious. If mercy is withholding, grace is giving. When God is gracious, He graciously bestows His divine favor upon His people. When sinners, like you and me, hide ourselves in Jesus, trusting in Him for our salvation from God's judgment, God bestows the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon us. And through our faith union with Jesus, we receive God's favor. It is undeserved favor in the sense that there was nothing that we had done to earn it. We have God's favor because we have Jesus by faith. Our God is also slow to anger. You know, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, especially the Old Testament, then you might be tempted to think that God has a short fuse. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. God patiently led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, and yet they were provoking Him the whole time with their sin and rebellion. Just go and read the book of Numbers this afternoon. And I think that you'll come away amazed that God didn't just completely wash His hands of the people of Israel after 40 years in the wilderness with all of their whining and complaining. Now think about yourself for a moment. How many years have you been following Jesus? How much whining and complaining has He heard from you and me? If we spend any amount of time reflecting on those two questions... We should come away grateful that God is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He has suffered long with us. And He does it because mysteriously and wonderfully, He loves His people. Christian, He loves you. And my guess is that even this past week, you have had moments, maybe many of us have had moments, where we've thought to ourselves, you know, if people really knew me, people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If anyone really knew the darkness that I hide, they would run from me. Christian, here's the thing about our God. He knows the darkest places of our hearts. He, he knows the deadliest and most dangerous sins that tempt us. He knows what we have buried deep down. He knows what we are afraid to tell anyone else for fear that they won't love us. He knows. And He loves us still. And He doesn't just kind of love us. He says, He, he as verse 15 says, He has an abounding 
love toward us, a steadfast love for, for us. He loves us with an overwhelming love, an overcoming love. How do we know that? Well, because He's told us, but He's also demonstrated His love toward us. He has revealed and shown His love toward us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Just think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, this is especially what I want you to take away from Psalm 86. God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You can come to know God, love God, and be loved by God. You can be delivered by the one and only true God. How? Well, you must confess that you are poor and needy. That there is nothing you have to commend yourself to God. Actually, you've got to do something even harder than that. You've got to confess what each and every one of us must confess. That we have sinned and rebelled against God. We have all done what the first man and the first woman who walked this earth have done. We've tried to rule over our own lives and run God's world rather than recognize that He, He alone, is God. Our lives don't commend us to God. The truth is they condemn us before Him. But the good news of the Bible is that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He displayed His love and faithfulness to His promises by sending His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself took on flesh. Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience to God. In a way even greater than David, Jesus could say, I am godly. Jesus was without sin. In a way more profound than David, Jesus could claim that He was God's great servant. He did everything God commanded. In a way more glorious than David, Jesus is, as verse 16 says, the Son of God's maidservant, Mary. Jesus walked in God's ways. He had an undivided heart. Always living and doing for the glory of God. He did that for sinners like you and me, totally devoted to His Father in heaven. And because He was, He died on the cross for sinners like us. On the cross, Jesus died bearing the sin and the punishment due to sin for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the grave. In the words of verse 13, God delivered Jesus from Sheol. Jesus' resurrection proves to us that we can entrust ourselves to God like David did. We can entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus, the one who can deliver us from something far worse than physical death. Jesus can deliver us from eternal spiritual death. So friend, I invite you now to turn from your sins and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus. And if you want to know more about what it means to come to know, love, and follow Jesus, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important that you can think about than what it means to personally know and experience that God is merciful and gracious, that He's slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness through Jesus. Really, it's out of the proclamation of God's character in verse 15 that we have the closing petitions of, verse, of Psalm 86. Four petitions emerge there in verses 16 and, and one in verse 17. Do you see them? Turn to me, be gracious to me, give your strength, save the son of your maidservant, and show me a sign of your favor. These petitions beautifully round out the psalm. The first two requests for God to turn and be gracious not only match up well with the petitions of verse 1 and through 3, but they're also re reminiscent of the blessing of Aaron from Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, where Aaron prays that God would turn his face toward his people and be gracious to them. Not only does David need grace, but he also needs the strength to endure. And the final petition of verse 17 is perhaps the most challenging of all. David asks for a sign. David seems to want some kind of confirmation that his enemies won't triumph over him in the end. David wants to know that God's justice will be served. As we thought about in Psalm 54, when we think about these prayers for judgment upon God's enemies, we must remember that David's enemies, and therefore God's enemies, are not innocent men. They are ruthless men, insolent men, who unjustly seek David's life. David is praying for God to make his justice known. Maybe you wonder, you know, can we ask God for a sign like David did. Well, there are a few reasons I think that's unwise. Um, we need to remember that David was God's anointed king. He was promised that he would come to the throne, and that he would reign on the throne, and that God would make his name great, and that his offspring would sit on his throne. We, uh, you and I, uh, don't occupy that kind of place in the flow of redemptive history. In asking for a sign, God, uh, David is asking for God to make it plain that all of the promises that he has received will come true. And the truth is, is that you and I have already received the sign that we need. The sign that proves that all of God's promises to us will come true. Not only have we received the sign of the virgin birth of Jesus, as was promised in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and confirmed in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, but Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 12 that the sign that he would give would be the sign of Jonah, the sign of his resurrection from the dead. And we have received that sign. Jesus did get up from the dead. His resurrection proves and promises to us that we will finally be delivered from this world of sin. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. One of the most difficult things about the Christian life is that we almost always want something more from God. We, we want a sign, for instance. The truth is, uh, that, that's understandable on one level. It's, it's, it's understandable because it's hard to wait in hope. It's hard to wait for our deliverance from this world of sin. Still, that is when we need to learn the lesson of this psalm. That when burdened by troubles and trials, we have to make God and His gracious, patient, loving and faithful character, our central concern and focus. Realize this about the conclusion of Psalm 86. We're not told that David would get his sign. So what is he left to do? Well, all, all that he can do is go back and remember how God has acted in the past. You see that there? You have helped me and comforted me. All David can do is go back and cling to the truth 
that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that David can do is to cling to the God who delivered him and comforted him in the past and keep believing that he will do it yet again. And the same is true for us. God has helped us and comforted us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We have to look to the past in the present, persevering into the future with faith that the God who has delivered us before will deliver us once more. Let me say that again. We have to look to the past in the present, persevering into the future with faith that the God who has delivered us before will deliver us once more. That is who He is. He is the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We can trust Him. So set your eyes on Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking that you would hear our prayers. That you would hear and be gracious to us. Father, we are in need. We have so many different kinds of needs here this morning. And we pray and ask that you would give us faith to trust you in the face of each one of them. Father, we praise you. There is no God like you. You are glorious and good. You are gracious and kind. And Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for how you have been merciful to us. How you've placed the punishment for our sins on Jesus Christ. And Father, we give you thanks for the grace, the favor that you have shown us in Christ. And we hide ourselves in him. Father, we ask that you would hear this prayer and that you would deliver us and that you would save us. Father, we... We face difficulty in this world of sin. And so we look to you to deliver us from it to glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. So give us the strength, we pray. Father, hear us. Help us to persevere in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, in this closing song, what we're doing is we're looking back. We're looking back to the past. Back to Christ's cross. That's all that's left for us to be done now, is to sing, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to go ahead and pull that insert out.